0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal! Hey, this is Jay Weinberg from Slipknot, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. for all you punks in the press that want to start shit by printing lies instead of the things we said that means you and you said you're a hit parader circus magazine nick wall at Kerrang, bob guzioni jr at spin what you pissed off because your dad gets more pussy than you fuck you suck my fucking dick you be ripping off the fucking kids while they be paying their hard-earned money to read about the bands they want to know about printing lies starting controversy you want to end Motherfucker! Get in the ring, motherfucker! And I'll kick your bitchy little ass, punk. Welcome to Mel Up Your Podcast. I'm Clint Wells. I want to, first of all, apologize to Mick Wall, who I know uh, is rolling his eyes during that intro I had to do it, Mick. Surely you understand. Uh, Well, here we are. This is episode 205, and I have just wrapped up a wonderful conversation with legendary music journalist Mick Wall, all the way from the UK. Uh, We've been in contact for about a week trying to get this interview done, and uh, the schedule's just finally lined up on today, which is Thanksgiving Day, here for us. And I figured I'd go ahead and just put it out early as a Thanksgiving treat for all of you out there. As a way to say thank you, we're so grateful for the Metal Up Your Podcast family, all of our friends uh, across the whole world who tune in every week, who engage with us and uh, hope wherever you are and whatever you're celebrating and whatever you believe in all of that shit that you're doing well. And uh, let me introduce Mick to those of you who may not know. I mean, you're going to have known his work. Um, He's an author, journalist, film, television, radio writer, producer. He was a host of a TV show. He's worked inside the music industry for over 35 years and has been described as the world's leading rock and metal writer. Now, I don't know if his mom wrote that or or his wife. Uh, Just kidding. No, he is a uh, world-renowned music journalist, but also a biographer. I mean, I've got several of Mixed Books on my shelf And uh, we talk all about that stuff. Now, the pertinent issue here for the Metal Up Your Podcast family is that he wrote a book in 2010 called Night: a Metallica biography, which has been called the first adult-oriented inside portrait of the most important metal band of the past 30 years. Now, here's the deal. Did we talk about Metallica for this 90 minutes? No. We talked about what two nerds like ourselves uh, would talk about if we were at a bar having a beer. Uh, which is just music and the culture of music, uh, music journalism. We talked a lot about um, the ins and outs of touring. We talked about egos. We talked about fraud syndrome. We talked about Def Leppard and Black Sabbath. We talked about Ozzy Osbourne, Pink Floyd, Van Halen. And yes, we did talk about Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And I think you're going to enjoy getting to meet Mick as much as I did we were fast friends you'll be able to hear in the interview you know i think we uh, originally we only had about 45 minutes to talk and that turned into a real quick 90 minutes and uh just definitely a kindred spirit out there in the world and of course i mean you know a hero of mine just i've been you know reading his work his reviews hearing him in guns and roses songs my whole life so such a treat to uh, spend time with him this morning i think you're really going to enjoy it and without further ado I bring you Mick Wall. I can't talk about it anymore. It's giving me a headache. Here, take two of these. Ah, new print. Little, yellow, different. All right, well, here we are with Mick Wall, legendary. In fact, I have right here in front of me, it says you've been described as the world's leading rock and metal writer. And of course, as a thirty-seven year old growing up with a, a particular Guns N' Roses record, I think I heard your name before I, I learned most of the important lessons that I know about life. So how does it feel to be described that way? Do you see yourself that way?
1: What is the um what was it? The best the what was it? The the
0: world's leading rock and metal writer. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's but- absolutely right. Yeah. There's uh, <laughs> there can be no doubt about that. I think we all know that's true. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I before this meeting before that, uh, before I was I was in contact with your people to talk to you before you had this new podcast. I mean, I've got a shelf full of your shit over here in my uh, in my studio. So it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you for making the time.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: So I want to talk about I mean, I have too many things to talk to you about. Actually, we're gonna to have to maybe do a 10 part series here. I'll, I'll be the Ken Burns <laughs> for your career. But you do have this new podcast. My new
1: podcast is called Get Your
0: Rocks Off.
1: So Dead Rock Stars was 2018. I did 23 eps of that. Um, It was staggeringly popular. Mm -hmm. I did it with... um, uh, uh, My co-host was a guy called Joel McIver, Mm -hmm. who has written uh, a lot of rock and metal biographies. Um, But Joel was kind of the 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 straight man, you know he would kind of uh, frame the whole thing and set it up, and, and I would try and do my best to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, get your rocks off, which just started a couple of months ago. Um, it goes out live every Thursday, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. It's gonna go weekly early next year. Um, and uh, my co-host on that is John Hotton, who ha- is also another author. But John is someone I've worked with since um, uh, I helped hire him on Kerrang magazine back in the '80s. And it's it's much more of a, an equal situation um he's a very good storyteller he's not just a journalist he's a raconteur um so it's my podcast and john is is my uh, sidekick if you like but it's a different scene we don't just talk about dead rock stars we talk about any old story that we want to talk about
0: well i just read your book get your rocks off it doesn't seem like you have any shortage of stories i was really blown away by how what a refreshing read it was I've read a lot of these (laughs) I gotta say I since Eddie Van Halen passed away it sort of dislodged something in me it sort of hit me in a really profound way I've been reading a bunch of Van Halen stuff and I just finished Sammy Hagar's book Uh, I don't know if you've read that read yeah it was pretty it was a pretty rough read it was a pretty rough read so reading your book uh was refreshing because you you obviously are a great writer. It's not just telling crazy stories. I was really struck. Actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you about the book is some of these stories you tell about some of the shenanigans you got into, the detail is so vivid. And it made me wonder, how do you tap into that kind of memory, that kind of detail, especially when you were partying with some of these people like that?
1: Well, it's two things. I mean, number one is I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So I, I I didn't get into writing about rock artists or metal artists because I was a big fan of the music. Um, as a teenager, I grew up in the seventies as a teenager buying albums, and I would buy Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath right next to David Bowie, Elton John. Uh, I mean, you name it: Dylan, mm-hmm. Yes, Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. and all the ones or obscure ones. So for me. Um, uh, it, it wasn't that I was a, in those days. You didn't. You didn't have to be. Oh, you're a rock guy. So that means you don't like. Um, right. I don't fucking know. Elton think John of or something. Yeah. 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 Uh, Rod Stewart. Right. Yeah. Um, it was like no, no, no. I, I. There were two. As far as I was concerned, there were two kinds of albums: good and bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could appreciate it all. So when I started as a writer, it was in the punk era in the UK, and the only work going for a 19-year-old guy was to go and review punk groups um pretty much all of them shit mm-hmm. uh, trying to make a name for yourself so i would review them as if i was reviewing the rolling stones at madison square garden because i saw it as a showcase for my writing i needed to get noticed as a writer cut to you know six years later Um, I'd worked in the business as a publicist. I owned my own PR company, which was called Heavy Publicity. We did the PR for Sabbath, Journey, REO Speedwagon, Dire Straits, um, loads of people and a ton more you never heard of. Um, And so when I started writing for Kerrang, It wasn't the music that took me there. It was the stories. You know, I'd interviewed and worked with tons of pop stars. When I worked at Virgin Records in the early 80s, I did PR for the Human League, Culture Club, Japan, Simple Minds, lots and lots of pop stuff. And the pop stars were never as interesting. Hmm to the rock stars right i mean most of the rock stars were older than me and that immediately made them more interesting they weren't whiny little bitches like <laughs> pop stars sure and they weren't just big in the uk for three years they were fucking huge all over the world for three decades you know and um i love the stories you know i mean the longest interview I ever did was with David Lee Roth, and that lasted for about 13 hours.
0: Yeah, it's in the book. I I, I love that chapter.
1: Yeah, that's bizarre. I mean, we it was after a show in um, Worcester, Massachusetts, and uh, 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 way after the show, around midnight, we start talking, and we get out of there at lunchtime the next day. <laughs> And when we get back to the hotel, he's still, he's like, no, no, there's more, there's more to tell, you know. Right. But several grams of coke and a huge amount of later, I'm like, dude, I got to go to bed now.
0: What is it about you that endears these people who talk to a million journalists who are just trying to get a story? Do you think it's because they can sense in you that you really are just more interested in telling the story? than getting a good article or is that typical or is David Lee Roth kind of guy that will talk to anybody for 13 hours as long as they'll put up with it and have the right drugs?
1: Well, there's that.
0: Um, but I don't think you'll meet
1: any other journalist that's ever interviewed anybody for 13 hours. (laughs) I mean,
0: um, that's a record.
1: I think it's because, and I learned this when I was a publicist bringing music journalists to meet groups. Mm -hmm. um, the music journalist is, is the most despised figure on tour. He, he can't be trusted. No one, I mean, this is in the days when the music press was very, very important. It is no longer important. I have three teenage kids. They're crazy about music. They, they've never bought a magazine in their lives. Right. It's all right. on their phone, it's on their devices, and, and they really know their shit when it comes to music. Never read. Anything oh. but back then, no social media, no hundreds of channels, um particularly in the u k where rock and metal got a very bad deal after punk. It was just considered really, really uncool right so um the music magazines that did cover it were were, were crucial, but they were kind of gatekeepers mm-hmm. and and you could they could kill an album with one bad review, so they were treated really carefully. But they were despised. And really, it wasn't until they left the dressing room that we could all breathe out and relax and start to enjoy ourselves. So I brought all of that to my work as a writer. So um, I'd worked in management, I'd worked for record companies, I'd worked as a PR. I made an album one time. I mean, none of this was, it wasn't, I wasn't parachuting in like some. Uh, observer from another planet, you know, I'm parachuting in to see what your world is about. I was of the world and um, we all had people in common. And in those days, um, access was everything. These days you write a story, you've got to kind of look at the big picture. Back then, the number one question was, how are you doing? What's going on? Because you knew you'd be back in a couple of months to write about them again, so it was just an ongoing thing, and and I became the guy that they knew they could trust, because um, I wasn't looking for a scoop. There was, the, you know, some rock star fucking some groupie or taking heroin in his eyeball. You know, that's where I begin. You know, that that's not the story for me. I just assume that's the same for everyone. So you're safe with me. And also, I don't really give a shit if your new album's good or not. I want to know about you. Tell me a fucking story that's going to make me laugh right. or cry or curl my toes. My father, I come from an Irish family, and they're all storytellers. And my father was a musician uh, playing kind of Irish roots music and Scottish roots music, kind of what you guys turn into country music he and his band would come back to the house at like 2am from wherever they they'd just be playing little bars and clubs and even when I was like three or four years old he would get me up out of bed and I would go downstairs to sit around the fire while they carried on playing some IRA rebel songs or whatever it was and then about three or four in the morning the instruments would go down and they would start to tell stories having the crack as we say in Ireland, not crack cocaine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. crack as in a good time. I was absolutely fascinated to hear these crazy fucking stories from these men. You know, these weren't pussy boys walking around, stay singing. I love you. You love me. You know, these are fucking guys that have spent their entire lives building in the case of David Lee Roth, building a stellar career on the road. But I mean, every band I've worked with, and I've worked with them all, it's just interesting to know people like that and to 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 experience the world. So it was never a case of me coming in and going, whoa, you guys are weird. You know, it was, it was uh, are you as weird as me? You probably aren't.
0: Right. Right. Maybe
1: I can teach you something, too. I mean, when it, when it came to Def Leppard and Metallica and um, Bon Jovi and all these other bands that came along in the 80s, I was a little bit older. So to me, it's not like you know meeting your hero. You know, I've been in the business longer than a lot of them. Uh, when it came to Ozzy or Jimmy Page or Lemmy, now they were older than me, and, of course, they became my favourite people to hang out with because they were just a fucking hoot. You know, when you spent two weeks with Ozzy, trust me, man, you do not want to go back and talk to Beyonce or fucking, you know, whoever it might be telling you how great their new album is. You know, Ozzy didn't know anything about his new albums most of the time. (laughs) We were just having... Yeah, he once showed me a copy of Bark at the Moon and he goes... And if you look at the, the original sleeve, you'll see it says on the back, I think something like written, produced, and arranged by Ozzy Osbourne. And he goes, Look at that. He goes, I can't produce a fucking fart. the low fucking record. He goes, That's all Sharon. Is Sharon done all that? You know.
0: I do like in the book how you talk about Ozzy. I never really got to see that part of it. I just grew up on the albums. And of course, the Osbourne's the sort of parody of of him. But you talk in the book about how there was this magic about Ozzy that people kind of can't remember or, or younger people don't know about where he would be in a room and it would change a room. He had this dark magnetic thing. You write about that pretty well. It comes through pretty good in the book. I wish I could have, I wish I could have experienced it the way you did.
1: When the Osborns came out, I, I, I didn't really laugh. I, to me, it was more like a documentary. I mean, I've been laughing my ass off for 30 years. Um, me and Ozzy and Sharon would often say, "This is this is way before reality TV or social media. How can we get this on TV? Wouldn't it be funny? If people could really see what it's like to to live in Ozzy's world because mm-hmm. him and Sharon were like a double act. I mean, you just you would be in pain laughing so much, right? And they would be so indiscreet, and they would tell you the most dreadful stories about, you know, the top record company execs or other figures that appeared remote and weird, they would tell you the whole deal. And of course they're just humans. So all mm-hmm. you know, humans are ridiculous and funny if you can find out just the right amount of stuff about them. So I think they got a kick out of talking to me because I wasn't that other I wasn't that music journalist that turned up and didn't really know how it worked. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to be whined and dined and put in a fluffy room and do my interview and then fuck off. It wasn't like that. You know, when I wrote my Metallica book, Joel McIver, who was my uh, co host on Dead Rock Styles, he had written a Metallica book some years before. The
0: one called Injustice for All?
1: Yes. Um, and he rang me one night and said, I'm sitting here reading your book, and you've got this whole thing about how Johnny Z was in jail when he first made contact with Metallica. He said, How come Johnny never told me that story? And I said, Well, I've known Johnny for 30 years. I've been around his house. I know his wife. I know his kids. You probably rang him on the phone. He'd never met you before. I mean, telling someone about how you were in jail and what you're in jail for. I mean, you don't just, that isn't just something you tell someone in a phone interview or I'm writing a book. I mean, God bless Joel. I love Joel. He's a lovely man. But his books are fan books, Mm -hmm. they're written for fans. And they all have a nice, happy ending. And they all have a wonderful arc. And it's all like at the end of the tour, the band had a well-deserved rest. You know, it's it's that isn't my stuff. My stuff was at the end of the tour, they all fucking hated each other. Right, Half of them were doing smack, and the other half were all fucking each other in the arts. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> that's the reality. Hey, leave
0: me out of it. Leave me out of it, Mick. Come on. Well, listen, hey, you'd be
1: amazed <laughs> how many fucking rock bands suck each other off, you know, when
0: it comes to uh what really goes on. You brought the book up. I mean, it's interesting. So when you set out to write a book about the biggest band, one of the biggest bands in the world, which you've done that, for almost every big rock band in the world. What's the difference between, for those of us who have no idea how that world works, without getting into too many details, obviously, but you've written some unofficial, some official, you were Iron Maiden's official biographer. What does it look like for you to get that process started? You get access, Do you get sort of uh, unmitigated access to these people when they say, yes, you're going to write the official book? Writing the
1: official book is, uh, is a double-edged sword. You get all the access you need,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. but they get all the control they need. So when I was doing the Iron Maiden book, uh, their manager, Rod Smallwood, who I'd known for years and years and years, he had in his head a fan book for Iron Maiden fans. And I said, no, Rod, 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 I want to write this book as though I'm writing a book about the Beatles or I'm writing a book about Elvis. OK, I'm not I have no I, I do not want to give a shit what an Iron Maiden fan thinks. I want to know what real people that love books will make of this. Mm-hmm. So it's like, ah, OK, whatever, whatever. So we did that. And that's why the book was good. However. When it came to the signing off on it. There were certain things in there that you wanted changed. And it was purely business. Like at one point, I mean, there was a fractious relationship between Maiden and Judas Priest in the very early days. Uh, Steve Harris in particular uh, offered to punch a couple of them out and he could do. He's a tough guy. Uh, And and Steve had been brutally honest about the whole thing. Rod wanted me to finesse that because he was about to do a deal with Rob Halford as Mm -hmm. a solo artist. So it gets conflicted. It gets, yeah. you know, you've got access, but the price you pay is that they get the book they want. Now, obviously, I color outside the lines, get more than the book they want. They get a much, much better book than the one they want, but it's still, they have the final say. Now, they were pretty good. Maiden were pretty darn good, actually, very good. But they still got the final say. Yeah. And if they hadn't, certain things would be different. I've literally just finished working on Ronnie James Dio's official autobiography. He began it before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he actually written like six or seven chapters. And he made notes for all the other chapters. Now, I met Ronnie in 1980 when I was the PR for Black Sabbath, uh, and he had just come in to replace Ozzy. And so I've known Ronnie and his wife, Wendy, for 40 years. I, mean, I know Ronnie's been dead for 10 years, but i would known them since 1980. And I knew Ronnie really, really well. I worked with Ronnie through the 80s, the 90s, through heaven and hell, the whole nine yards. And um, and I know his voice. I can hear it in my head right now. So I, I completed the autobiography. I went back his early chapters. Um, it would be what you call a first draft. Mm-hmm. So I fleshed him out a little bit based on interviews he gave. There's a massive archive of stuff based on tons of interviews I did with him. But also based on my knowledge of the man. Because when you find out, it's like, if you and I, when we finish this, we go out and have dinner or a drink, you're going to get a much better sense of who I am. And I'll get a much better sense of who you are. Sure. And that's how it was with Ronnie. So in that sense, and Ronnie had such a distinctive voice, I I could hear him every step of the way. Did he
0: write that first draft himself? Was it his writing?
1: The first six or seven chapters, yeah. But it was Mm. the first draft. So right. it needed editing. Yeah, it needed polishing. Uh, he, you know, there's all sorts of things that people don't who've never written books don't understand. It's, it's living history, right? So if he says it was a Tuesday. I look that up and find out it's a Thursday. I change it. He talks about uh, his group Elf. He doesn't talk about one of the albums. He barely talks about the other albums. He talks about all the stuff around it, which is fascinating. But if you've never heard an Elf record, I think we really need to hear Ronnie telling us something about it. And so we put that in based on conversations and archived interviews. And Wendy, of course, who was there every step of the way, was able to tell me stuff even I never knew.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is absolutely
1: fascinating.
0: Yeah, what an honor.
1: But at the end of the day, that's Ronnie's book. Mm -hmm. So I'm honoring his story. And uh, so if I was writing a biography of Ronnie Dio uh, uh, and it wasn't uh, Ronnie's official biography, if I was doing it the same way I did Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix or Metallica, it would be a different book because I would bring a different kind of discipline to it. Uh, and, and, And for me, it's all about I don't write it for the band. I don't write it for the fans. I write it for this reader that I have in my mind who knows nothing about the subject doesn't come with 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 already some idea of what they like and don't like those people will read it anyway and if they're not happy I don't care because I want to tell the truth yeah And and fans don't like the truth. It's like trying to tell a kid that Santa Claus is
0: not real. They don't like to see behind the curtain. Yeah, it
1: fucks everything up. And I get that. I I I hate going backstage. You know, I've spent my life backstage. It's no fun. It spoils everything. I mean, it is fun, but I mean, if if you're a fan, you know, whenever we go and see things, a comedian or something that's on, uh, uh, and my wife or friends will say, "Should we go back?" say hi i'm like no no i really don't want to go back and say hi i just want to enjoy it for what it is
0: i have an idea of it that i want to believe you actually have a cool quote about that where you say covering rock and roll taught you only the deep dark stuff the nasty shit that leaves the stains that never wash off very little of the joy we imagine as teenagers sitting on our beds listening intently to the latest masterwork from one of the superhumans that made the album i thought that was a pretty poignant way of saying it i work in the music industry on the performance side of it so there is a there is a don't meet your heroes type aspect to the whole thing that i think comes through your stuff pretty well i mean i've read a lot of guns and roses books and the one uh the one that definitely spoke to me the most in terms of that reader you have in mind was the war book it just felt oh, yeah, it yeah. felt like a different flavor of that story that i've never seen in another book did you sort of distance yourself from that book, or you had said you...
1: I did at one point, and I'll be honest with you, the reason I did it was because um, somebody who was very close to Axel at the time, uh, who I wanted to interview for my Guns N' Roses book, Last of the Giants, mm-hmm. the war book was a biography of Axel. Right. The Last of the Giants was a biography of Guns and Roses, so it's not just Axel, it's the big picture. And he told me that Axel had read every single word of war, <laughs> and, and it blew his fucking mind. Mm-hmm. It upset him
0: mm-hmm. it,
1: it, it put him in a really like into deep shade.
0: Mm.
1: And was there anything I could do to help? And if I could help, he would talk to me from my book. So what I did was, I, there's nothing I can do about the the paper, the, the physical books that exist. Yeah, 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 But I had my own version out on Kindle. And I said, well, I can withdraw that. Because I was also conscious, it wasn't just that. I was conscious of the fact that uh, I didn't want people to think, oh, this is uh, Mick Wall having a vendetta against Axel. Sure, sure. I mean, it was 10 years later, 10 years between those two books. And in those 10 years, I've got three children and my youngest daughter, who's now 17, uh, she was diagnosed as autistic uh, when she was about 11. And I used to call her Axel Hmm. because she was such a fucking drama queen. Uh, There was no other way than her way. She'd change clothes five times. We used to call her Axel. We called her Lady Gaga. We called her Madonna. You know, we called her every drama queen we could think, not to her face, but Mm. me and my wife just threw it because it was a fucking nightmare. And then when we found out she was Asperger's, what they call high functioning. So that was the reason we didn't get the diagnosis till much later. But, in that ten years, that had happened to me, and I learned I went on courses. My wife works with adults with learning disabilities as well. That had also happened in the ten years. And I knew far more about um people that are troubled. And Axel is troubled. I, I'm not saying he's autistic
0: mm-hmm.
1: or Asperger's. but I would be absolutely amazed if he wasn't because so many people are. You know, we're all somewhere on that spectrum. And considering the childhood abuse he suffered, I mean, Mm -hmm. serious, serious. You can't get any more serious than being fucked in the ass as a baby, okay? Um, I developed a different idea of who he was. Uh, And so, war was about this guy who was just a fucking asshole. And the last of the giants is about this guy who would often behave like a fucking asshole, but that was because of other things uh which i still firmly believe so there's a little dedication at the front of last of the giants where it says uh for axel you won Mm. because i think he kind of he lost everything that man lost everything you know he lost his band he lost his career he lost his friends the only friends he has left are the ass-kissers that are on salary. Right. There's one or two I can think of straight away who've had no career outside of, uh, you know, soaping up Axel in the morning and toweling him down. You know, no problem with that. Every rock star has those. But Axel himself, I don't think people. I think they kind of think, oh, he's great. He's, you know, he's he's okay. He's great. Slash walked off. Duff walked off. Izzy walked off. He fired Stephen Adler for good reason, if you read the book. Um, he must be, you know, he, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what damage. He, of course he cares. This guy cares more than anybody. This guy cares more. That, he's the biggest Guns N' Roses fans that, fan that ever lived. Right. I, so, yeah, I did put distance between myself and that book, partly because this guy offered me a deal which he welched on. I withdrew the king, but he still wouldn't fucking talk to me, slippery cunt. <laughs> um, but I put my heart into the Guns N' Roses book. I didn't want it to be a book about this guy that had been in a song and now here's his book. I wanted it to be a real – that's why I call it Last of the Giants because, for me, they are the last of the giants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's never been a giant band uh, since then. I mean, Metallica got big, but they were around before Guns N' Roses. So uh, who does that leave? I don't know. I mean, okay, Tool are a great band. Mm. No one's ever heard of them outside of Tool fans, you know? Sure. Even though they're big.
0: Yeah, Tools, Tool's like Rush. I mean, Tool can sell out arenas as long as they want to, but yeah, they don't have that pop culture status, you know? If
1: I open my front door right now and grab anybody and say Tool, they will think I'm talking about you
0: know <laughs> i mean maybe radio maybe radiohead yeah but radiohead um you're more
1: kind of employed yeah you two, yeah do gooder you two, you know there's nothing dangerous about you 2 they're they're right on you know if they were coming now they'd be woke right you know they're, they're, i i fucking hate all that stuff i hate it Axel slash Guns N' Roses. And don't forget, I knew Guns N' Roses when they were nothing and I was with them as they got more and more famous. And and why I loved being with them was because it wasn't like being with Bon Jovi. It wasn't like being with Def Leppard. It wasn't even like being with Metallica. It was what I imagined in my head. It must have been like being with Zeppelin and the Stones in the early 70s because these boys truly didn't give a fuck. But they didn't give a fuck at a time when AIDS was huge, when uh, CDs were replacing vinyl, when the whole rock world became corporate. And their first single in the UK uh, has Axel going, "Uh, why don't you just fuck off right in the middle of it? So guarantee no radio, no nothing. I didn't even make a video, you know, because who's going to show it?
0: You talk in the book about meeting Slash for like lunch or something. And he's he's telling you, hey, I'm a little fucked up. I just smoked some heroin. <laughs> it's, I mean, there's an authenticity to it that even as a kid really came through. I had no I was living in Alabama and a little, you know, lower middle class life. But that office, that danger of guns was real palpable coming through Appetite for Destruction in my little headphones and blew my fucking mind.
1: Well, you just said the crucial word, authenticity. Yeah. You know, that is the one thing, Clint. Authenticity is the one thing, the one thing we can't find on our phones. We can't Google it. You know, to be real. You know, Guns N' Roses made you feel like you were in the room
0: Mm.
1: in the same way that Jim Morrison did in the same way that all those very transgressive rock artists did and axel not coming on stage for 3 hours and riots and you know to me this was like elvis in his most secret weird years or this was jim morrison going on stage having taken you know a mountain of lsd and and having some kind of religious experience on stage you know mm-hmm. That, to me, is authentic. And, of course, it comes with rough edges. The Doors all hated Morrison by the end of it. They were already recording an album without him when he died. I mean, this is stuff that comes out in my Doors book. Mm -hmm. They fucking hated him. Guns N' Roses hated Axel. They might still hate him. but So for me, it was kind of like, okay, one thing these guys never told me was how great their album was. You know, I I met Slash at 10.30 in the morning. He was at the Hyatt Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on Sunset, which is now called the Andes or something. But I was across the road at Le Montréal. I walked across Sunset to his hotel, met him. He'd just had breakfast with his dad, and he just chased the dragon with some smack. (laughs) And I said, how are you doing? And he goes, oh, I just smoked a foil, man, and kind of fucked up. Uh, Okay, good, okay. Yeah, (laughs) different, different different man you didn't get that when you met bono you know or any of those fucking
0: well and you're and you're obviously i mean you talk about it in your book some of the things you got into but i think even just spiritually philosophically you're cut from that cloth i mean i think that's why you got the best stories why they trusted you i mean you were partying with these dudes some of the stories in the book of you hanging out with like steve clark and stuff are, are wild man
1: steve was a couple years younger than me and um In fact, when Def Leppard were a baby band, uh, before they had an album deal, their manager at the time came to see me to see if I would do their PR. And we did Thin Lizzy. And he was saying to me, they're like Thin Lizzy. There's two guitarists, you know, it's a similar deal. You know, they're a rock band, but they're going to have hit singles. And I said, okay, let's hear the tape. Tape was amazing, Mm -hmm. but they were kids. I mean, Rick was still at school. And so I went to see them, and they were just fantastic. But they were kids. And I'm the big PR man who does Thin Lizzy and all these other bands coming to you know, tell them what I can do for them. So I'd known him all the way back. And I used to do a TV show in the UK. Mm-hmm. And while they were recording the Hysteria album, all those months and years they spent doing that, they used to, it was a satellite show, so they would show it five times a week. It was called The Monsters of Rock and um he used to watch it and so we became pals through that and uh so and i ended up having the monocles many times when their record came out so it was just a different thing i mean um, but would
0: you go out and live on tour with these with these bands the image i have the the sort of almost famous image of the journalist being on the road would you go out yeah. for your extended stretches i mean you're you're getting hotel rooms you're on the buses you're on the private planes
1: yeah completely because that was how it worked in those days in britain in the uk there were four weekly music magazines enemy sounds record mirror and melody maker and straight after punk enemy wouldn't do anything to do with rock and metal record mirror was kind of a pop chart what's number one in the chart type magazine. So that didn't do rock and metal. Melody Maker would do rock and metal, but only if it was, you know, Queen or Mm. Supertramp or, you know, something they could justify as more. They would not do Iron Maiden, okay? They should have, but they didn't. Sounds magazine did all of it. You know, I was there at Sounds when we came up with the idea for the new wave of British heavy metal. Mm. That was a Jeff Barton idea. And he was, we're going to do two, I was going to do this story called The New Wave of British Heavy Metal. And he was going to do one called The New Wave of American Heavy Metal. And that was seen as the glamour gig, you know, because he's now going to go around America Mm -hmm. and it's going to be amazing. I'm going to go around Britain to all these shitty little towns in the late 70s (laughs) and write about this scene that clearly no one will ever mention ever again.
0: Hmm. Famous last words.
1: The flip happened. Right. So, Sounds invented the new wave of British heavy metal. That's how powerful the music press was. Right. The NME, more or less, invented the Sex Pistols. You know, I mean, without that coverage, nothing would have happened. The radio and TV would not play rock and metal. Right. The main music papers wouldn't cover it. So, if you are, the first time I uh, went to New York, I was a PR for Black Sabbath. I took two journalists with me. It was a weekend in New York, two nights at Madison Square, and then we were coming home on the Sunday. I let the journalists go home and I stayed because I was already transitioning back to being a music writer. And I just rang the editor at Sound and said, I'm in New York. What do you think? He gave me a list of shit that was going on. And you would just call the PR in New York and say, I'm at the Gramercy Park. Uh, I'd like to go and see David Bowie and Elephant Man. I'll write about it. And they go, okay, we'll pick up a couple of nights for you at the hotel. I go, okay. And then you go, um, there's another group. I flew down to San Francisco to write a story about. And then I flew from there to LA to write a story about another group. Three weeks later, I was still in America. <laughs> and, um, and so putting a guy on the bus with the group, uh happened all the time it was there's there's no mobile phone there's none no skype you know you've got to be there and and music journalists were so important to the business back then that that you got the prime spot um they would take more care about the music journalists turning up than they would if their old ladies were turning up you know um or the drug dealers you know journalists came first because they would make or break an act And then as time went by and I got to know people better, I mean, I worked as a record company and that's different. Of course, you're on the road. But as a writer, the fact that I had a TV show as well and a radio show and all this kind of stuff, it it just put me in a different headspace. And the fact that, that, you know, time and time again, I was there and time and time again, I didn't write about all the shit. You know, they would be horrified to read because right. bands on the road do nothing but horrible shit. They do not want to read. Um, so, yeah, all the time, all the time. A friend of mine went on the road in Canada for three weeks with a group called Nazareth,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he didn't even write the story. He came home <laughs> so fucked up he just couldn't get around to it, you know. But you were talking about the detail. The de- I, I, I fudged that. The detail is I love stories. You know, stories need to be told. So anything you read in Get Your Rocks Off, the book, these are stories I've told many times.
0: Right, you didn't just sit down for the first time to try to remember hanging out with Skinny Pete. And ho- I can't, I can't recommend the book enough. The very first part of the book is you being at a party. I can't remember what band you were with, but there's this drug dealer named Skinny Pete, and it pops off the page, man. I felt like I was in the goddamn room. <laughs> it was scary. It scared me.
1: Well, that was that was uh, me at the Sunset Marquee in L.A. With Rat, right? Based over well, Rat were
0: there, Def Leopard, Slash. You tell the story about about Warren Martini playing his new album, but no one really liked it. And there's actually several. Uh, there's a thread in your book. It's with Steve Clark. It's even with you when you wrote your your Bowie story for Sounds when you were trying to get that gig. There's that fraud syndrome thread a little bit in the book that I find interesting. I find I've and you must have seen this a million times out on the road with all these bands. But why do you think fraud syndrome is so prevalent in the music industry and rock and roll? These dudes just can't believe that the people love them and like them or that their record's good or that they're legitimate artists, etc.
1: I think it's because um, from the word go, all they've ever heard is how great they are. And when great becomes easy. uh, When I was very young, I had friends that were in a band I think they may have made one record eventually. But my God, man, they were always surrounded by chicks.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: All the people with the best drugs wanted to hang out with them. They weren't even that good looking, but they stood on a stage with guitars. You know what I'm saying?
0: That's the power.
1: That's the power. So imagine, and that's a group that no one would have heard of and never did anything. Now, imagine you're Steve Clark in Def Leppard. And Hysteria has just sold 7 million copies in the U.S., making you the first band ever, including the Beatles, first band ever to have two albums consecutively sell over 7 million copies in the U.S., which was Pyromania and Hysteria. And, of course, they both went on to do even more than that. Mm -hmm. I just remember this one night on the road, there was a photographer there, especially to take pictures for Billboard, because Hysteria just passed 7 million Pyromania had passed seven million, and it was the first band ever to do that. And Steve's having his picture taken. And it kind of goes on a little bit too long. And eventually he walks away. And uh he's like, oh, fuck this, let's get out of here, you know. Because, because he spent years and years and years being told how amazing he is. But the fact is the rest of the band didn't think he was so amazing because he was fucked up all the time. Mm-hmm. The fact is, you know, you're, there's a lot of people look at you and go, wow, Clint does that podcast, man. He's amazing. He's a musician as well. I mean, <laughs> that guy, what a life that guy's got, you know.
0: They only knew. But,
1: but exactly. Life is just fucking life. But imagine if the minute we finish, your door bursts open and here comes 20 people just telling you how fucking amazing that interview was. And you've just done a, I'm not saying your podcast now, but imagine, you know, mo- most gigs are lousy. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much, you come off stage and it's fuck. You know, duh, duh, duh. it's like my books. I can't read my books. I'm like, I'm, I'm so over it by the time they're done. Mm. But you, I'd say to the bands, "You ready?" They go, "Okay." So I'm gonna let them in now. I've okay. just been screaming at each other. You know, I'd open the door and in the cup "Oh man, you were great. That's the best gig I've ever seen." And you know, you paint the smile on your face. You're like, "Ah, yeah." yeah, yeah. Try doing. A 14-month world tour I mean uh, you know no you just lose faith that anybody has the faintest idea who you are what you're doing what the value of it is you know and, and I don't know if you've done any touring Clint I mean i I do tours now for myself where I do book tours um I also we talk about doing a, a, an official memoir I ghosted an autobiography for a guy over here called Francis Rossi. He's the singer in a group called Status Quo. Mm. only ever had one hit in America 50 years ago. But in this country, they've had like 65 hit singles, 43 hit albums. They're as well known as the Beatles in the UK. And I ghosted his autobiography. So we went out on the road for seven weeks, five nights a week, with me, as it were, talking to him on stage and him telling stories from the book. And we were on a luxury tour bus. No drink, no drugs. He hasn't done any of that for 30 years. Uh, I'm getting old. I don't need, you know, I, I, I'm i not a drug guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to drink. But, you know, you finish the gig at 11 o'clock and you're just back on the bus having a sandwich mm-hmm. and hitting the sack, really. Right at the end of that seven weeks on this luxury bus with this guy who's seen and done it all. So everything's very chill. I'd lost about 10 pounds. I was all fucked up. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. Uh, Everybody was arguing. It was the very last night of the the tour. As I came down the steps uh, coming off stage, I went off this way. He went off that day and we were going in to do this book signing at the end of it. And As I come down the steps before we're led into the room where the people are, as I'm coming down the steps, he's standing there and he goes, "If you don't want to fucking do this with me with me anymore, just fucking say so." And I'm like, "Why the fuck would you say that?" You know, it's, <laughs> and suddenly, boom, and there's two hundred people in there waiting to get their book signed. And we're like, "Oh hi, hi!" Right. And every one of them said, "What a great show it was." You know, we've been winding each other up a little bit on stage because we're sick to death of each other. One person, one woman said to me, are you and Francis, are you very old friends? I said, we've known each other for many, many years, but through work, you know. She said, because you just come across like the best friends on stage.
0: Which is part of the job.
1: And I'm thinking, you wouldn't have said that two minutes ago if you saw us screaming at each other.
0: Right.
1: And when the book signing was over, he didn't even say goodbye to me, just fucked off. Now. Cut to this year, and me and Francis did the whole... We're going to do the whole thing again. 11 weeks this time, (laughs) 60 shows. We were only four shows in when the whole COVID lockdown thing killed it. Mm. But we're going to go out again next summer if if all things work out. And I love Francis, and we WhatsApp each other every day, and we send gags, and we talk, and it's all good. But... um, That's seven weeks. Imagine if you are Iron Maiden did 13 months on their World Slavery Tour. I went out on a lot of that. Uh, And it's bizarre. You go back three months later and you've had three months of whatever life brings you. For them, it's fucking Groundhog Day. Three months have gone by. Nothing's changed from the last time you walked in that room because they always have their dressing rooms done up the same every show. Yeah. The hotels look the same.
0: It's a strange, uh, I've lived on tour buses for 10 years touring. So all of this deeply resonates with me. It's a strange arrested state. Like you just said, time stands still. But it also is a weird accelerator. It's such a strange way to live that like, for example, you can get really deep with somebody. You can basically accelerate a 10 year friendship or relationship with someone after three months of living in a bus with them. And it just it's a warping mechanism, warps your relationships, your sense of reality, and all that you write really eloquently about in your book. I'm looking forward to the deal book. When's that supposed to drop next
1: year? Well, I say next year 20. Yeah, next year 2021. We're literally in the process of setting up deals for it. So there's already a deal in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, America,
0: what's it going to be called?
1: Rainbow in the Dark.
0: Awesome. Now, other than doing a, uh, I don't know, a four to five volume series on the Metal Up Your Podcast story, uh, is there any <laughs> other, other artist or band that you you've wanted to write about that you haven't been able to, or something in the future you got your, your eyes on? A, a good YouTube biography? <laughs> you can go to Africa with Bono and talk about saving the world. That's right up your alley.
1: I'll tell you a story. I wrote a book about Bono, let me see,
0: 15 right. years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, well, do me a favor Never, ever, ever read it
0: I did read it ne- No! I did read it, In the Name of Love, was that it? Yeah So what's the story?
1: So, I was offered a deal to write a book about Bono I was really up for it um, And uh, And we did the deal And there's a deadline You know, they're hustling you to get the pages to them but they still hadn't given me my advance. You know how it works in books is you sign a contract, you get a signature advance, you sign the deal, they give you uh, uh, a quarter of the money. You deliver the work, you get another quarter of the money. The book comes out as a hardcover, you get a third quarter of the money, and then a year later when it comes out as a paperback, you get the final quarter okay, so we've done the deal and it's now two months later and they're saying, how's it going? And I'm like, I haven't been paid. I haven't been fucking paid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, they're, and they're kind of, I hate this attitude of, you know, like, oh, but aren't I just getting on with the story because I love Bono so much? I'm like, <laughs> Where my fuck? where's my fucking money, man, you know? And, and with me, coming from Irish peasant stock, you do not fuck about with money. It's the one thing I lose my shit over. Mm-hmm. Because even at my great age now, I'm still having to explain to people half the time that I'm not here because I'm a fan. This is what I do. I need to get paid, you know. So um, I, I'm fuck these people. I don't like what's going on. Next thing, John Peel, a very famous uh, radio presenter and writer, over he died very shockingly of a heart attack. And I've known John. I loved John and his work. And so I, I put aside Bono and I wrote kind of a tribute book to John. Um, it only took me two or three weeks because it was very much, it wasn't the full size of a book. It was, it was me literally just saying, I'm writing this because he just died yesterday. These are my feelings. And, and wasn't he amazing? And there's never been a book about it. Hmm. Then comes out and it just takes off like a fucking rocket. It just is the best-selling book I'd ever had at that point. And meanwhile, the people at the Bono company are emailing me because they're seeing the John Peel book up the charts. And they're sending me these really sarcastic, taunting emails like, Oh, I guess you haven't had time for Bono while you're doing your John Peel blah, blah, blah. Very weird and unprofessional. Right. And I'm also thinking, you've only just paid me. It's four months later you paid me. I'll do it. Don't I'll do the fucking book. Anyway, I, I grew very, very disenchanted with them. I hated them. Just as the John Peel book was becoming one, of the, it was one of the biggest sellers that year, and so and I was also feeling very ill, very ill. And so I I spoke to a friend of mine who was a writer, and I offered him a deal. I offered to pay him to write that book for me. Wow! And yeah, and I said, look, you, just write it. Don't do don't do a don't be like trying to write well. Just give me the story and then I will take that and I will build on it. You know, I will, I, you will build the chair and I will paint it, you know. And, uh, that seemed like a good idea to me because it would get the book done quick. And I, I was, I was actually feeling very ill and I just was, uh, just, it was like, Painting by numbers, you know. But that Michael was more with that,
0: the that was more with the publishing company, not really the band. That was just sort of whoever had agreed to do the option for the book.
1: Nothing with the band, and then just as it was coming to an end, I I had a heart attack. Yeah. And so I was really ill. Uh, yeah. I, it was like I wasn't lying. I really did feel bad. You know? Here's the
0: doctor's note that says heart attack on it. Here.
1: So the book just it just the book got a bad time it was the worst time in my life to try and do something like that and i hated the publishers and the whole thing just came out by the end of it i was playing games with myself to see if, have a look and you'll spot this how many times i could say something like legendary in a sentence
0: yeah yeah, yeah.
1: so i'd say uh, uh uh the most legendary gig you two did was when they did the legendary live aid concert yeah. in 1985 a, a legendary year in rock music now look back legendary Bob Geldof. Honestly, man, if you open that book, you'll see this guy was nuts. Whoever wrote
0: this, he was in bad. It's been a while since I read yeah, it.
1: Don't, in fact, don't don't, 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 don't. My wife and I joke that if we really hate someone,
0: we give them give a them copy the of the book. Yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts about the Metallica book when you think about it? Do you have a, a, a nice feeling about it? Cause we've talked about the Axel book, you know, some of these yeah. books conjure a certain feeling for you. What's your feeling about the Metallica book? I mean, I can tell you just as a fan and a reader that it, Especially doing the podcast, I reference it pretty much anytime I need to do a deep dive into whatever we're talking about. I always read through in your book, however far it goes up to Death Magnetic, you know, 2010 ish. What's your thought about the book?
1: It was the first book I wrote after my Led Zeppelin book. And my Led Zeppelin book was a game changer for me in terms of, of, of how well I could write a story, how deep I would go. You know, Zeppelin, I thought I knew that story. I've known Jimmy Page for 20 years. I thought I knew that story. And by the end of the 18 months it took me to do that book, I realized I'd never known anything.
0: Well, I think Hammer of the Gods is one of the most overrated rock books in history. I mean, your book really is the book to me for Zeppelin. Uh,
1: My book pisses all over Hammer of the Gods. Hammer of the Gods was great at the time, time, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's like Star Wars... My book was like Game of Thrones. You know, it was you really got. Yeah, the, I agree. The
0: deep uh, background. Do you pay attention to that kind of thing? Do you sort of compare yourself to other other bios or other other work like yours? Do you do you have a do you have your ear to the ground on some of that?
1: It depends who the writer is.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm
1: very very familiar with all the rock and metal writers, which is why it's easy for me to joke and say, "Yeah, I am the number one," because <laughs> most of them are fucking horrible. They're terrible. I must but, agree but with you. I, but they are music fans. Mm-hmm. And this has been their way to get closer to the music, to feel more connected to the artists. So it's like getting someone to write about their favorite hockey team or, or baseball team or whatever it is, you know. They've got that whole history and connection, and that's where it all comes from. I've known Metallica, known Lars. Since the days when he used to sleep on my couch in London, mm-hmm. and by the time, long before I began that book, he'd gone from sleeping on my couch to having a fountain in his courtyard that is bigger than your house, you know. <laughs> right. And I didn't want to. I don't want to destroy relationships, but the most important relationship for me is with the reader. Sure. And so, and so, at the end of that Metallica book, James Hetfield won't speak to me anymore. And Lars still speaks to me. Last time he called me, he was like, Hey, it's your favorite drummer. Because because I think I kind of discussed in the book how not very good he was as a drummer, you know, for a while.
0: What was it um, in the book that uh, what was it in the book that upset James?
1: Well, everything. He he he's a control freak. What he hated was he didn't have any control. And what had happened was I approached them. Peter Mensch, their manager, who I've also first met back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and said, Look, here's my Zeppelin book. It's had amazing reviews in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington, whatever it is, the London Times. It's been a major bestseller all over the world. And it's a serious fucking book. This is the shit. I want to make my next one on Metallica. I'm the perfect guy to do it. And Peter Mensch said, Look, send them your Zeppelin book and and see what they say. They're in Paris. I sent James a copy. I sent Lars a copy. I sent Kirk a copy. I'm probably Rob. Um, and nothing ever happened. Nothing ever happened. All that came back really was, was that Lars would be happy for me to do it, but James, not so much. So I went and did it anyway. And and so what I think I don't know if James thought when he said no at that point, that meant there would be no book or uh, as seems more likely to me, he just blew his fucking mind that he had zero input, you know, because like most big bands, Metallica have all their pet writers. You know, whenever they do anything official that requires writing, there's one guy I can think of straight away who they get. Is it because he's the best writer? Is it because he he's a slave who will do their bidding? Yes, he's not a bad writer. He's a good writer, but he's their pet.
0: Is that because he's a big fan, or is that because it's uh, you know he's incentivized to write a certain way for them?
1: Oh no, it's both. It's both. It goes all the way back. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he
0: is someone who
1: was younger than them, and
0: mm-hmm. was a fan. Yeah, uh, he got the thrill out of you know being
1: their guy. So uh, nothing wrong with that. But it's a different world to the one I'm in. And um, so I think James just got all fucked up because he had no input. He couldn't control it. Um, I talked a lot of, as you know, I talk about his childhood, his really? background, the whole Jehovah's Witness thing. Yeah, I talk about the James I knew who could be very intimidating. And I just wrote a lot. Of, I just trolled the truth. Mm-hmm. But I really like that book. To answer your question, I'm proud of I did straight after Zeppelin right. and to me it had to be as good as Zeppelin. I'm not saying it, it I was succeeding but it to me it's it's as good as anything I did in those days.
0: I've said for years now on the podcast it's the best it's the best Metallica book as I'm sure you know there are a bunch some some better than others but that's the one in my opinion. In in terms of
1: other writers um I always say to people if you want to be a good music biographer don't read any music biographies. Read great writers. You know, I was the editor of, one of the founding editors of Classic Rock Magazine and years before that on Kerrang! You know, young writers would say to me, what, what, you know, what's the secret? What do I do? What advice would you give me? Uh, and I'd say, well, first of all, don't read music journalism. Forget all that shit. Read the writers. Read Hunter S. Thompson." Read Lester Bangs if you want to read about music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read James Ellroy, man. Read some good stuff. Well, I was going to say
0: I see I see a lot of Henry Miller in your stuff. Uh, I see Bukowski in your stuff. Oh yeah, it definitely seems as though you read the great the greats, not just Lester Bang for or Nick Kent, for example. Although that's in there too.
1: Yeah, a little bit, I guess. I mean, I did read. I mean, Lester. I think I tried to be more like him at one point. But um, you're more you're you're absolutely spot on when you say Bukowski mm-hmm. and who's
0: the other one? Oh, Henry um, Miller.
1: Henry Miller, that's so interesting. I haven't read any Henry Miller for decades. Yeah. But when I first started writing for Kerrang, I was Henry Miller obsessed.
0: Yeah, it comes through.
1: And I'd be reviewing some little metal band in the north of the country at <laughs> right. some bar. I'd be writing it as if it was Henry Miller yeah, going yeah. off to the in paris you, you talk know. about
0: these punk bands and these little shady rock or you know clubs where you thought you're going to get fucking stabbed to death but it you're, it reads like tropic of capricorn you know it's fun
1: <laughs> i think that's the best compliment anybody's ever paid me you're the only person <laughs> to pick up on the henry miller thing
0: oh well I, i'm a culture vulture too man but i but i do the thing you said not to do i read all the goddamn rock bios too because i'm such a nerd
1: yeah you mustn't do that you mustn't do that i mean there are some good ones. there are some good. ones. What are the good
0: ones? yeah, off the top of your head what what can you think of that are good? Okay, um, that Bob Spitz Beatles, Beatles book was pretty good.
1: I was gonna say some that there's been some excellent writing about the Beatles. I used to quite enjoy uh, books on the Rolling Stones. But they kind of come under the hammer of the gods heading now. You know, they were they were thrilling back in the day, but now it's kind of like we already know all that stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah. I tell you who is uh, oh, is can't remember his name. How awful. The man biographers, shut up, my pug. Um, <laughs> they tend not to write about rock or metal. They'll they'll write about they'll write about film or they'll write about whatever. Here mm. he is.
0: Hi. What's his name? This is Coco. We had uh, two pugs. We had a black and a fawn pug as well. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. We had two. The kid, the kid kind of wiped those clean. We couldn't handle all the dogs and the baby. Man, that's a now, big listen. boy. That's a big guy. He is. He yeah. Is. He's a
1: big, aren't you?
0: Hey, a cutie big, pie. Big
1: Hi. I'm going to put you down again now. He's kind of become a little bit of a star on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, he makes his first appearance on the Rob Halford one. Because usually I get someone, we've got four dogs, I get someone to look after them while I do the podcast, I do it from home. Mm -hmm. And this day everybody was out. So I had him in the room, because otherwise he starts crying and scratching at the door. And he snores like a motherfucker, you know, so uh, you could hear in the background him snoring.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a feature of the show.
1: I say, should I get rid of that pug? And John goes, nah, leave him, he's fine. Suddenly since then I've had emails going, What's his name? Yeah,
0: he's gets fan mail now.
1: Yeah. Somebody said, Will the heavy metal pug be featuring in any few? And sure enough, we just recorded the latest one um on Tuesday. It doesn't go out for a couple of weeks, but he's snoring. Again, I was caught on my own in the house, and at one point I do pick him up because he won't stop snoring. He's like an old man.
0: He's like me. How are you enjoying doing the podcast? I mean, after everything you've done, everything you've written, you've embraced this new thing where people don't read anymore. It's such a bummer. But people listen to podcasts. I mean, you probably reach more people with one episode than you maybe even for your next book. So how's that been for you? Are you enjoying it?
1: With Dead Rockstars, um, it took off really quick Mm -hmm. and uh, we had no idea. We had no plan, no strategy. There was no marketing, no promotion. It was a guy at a production company who was a friend of Joel's who would fit us in in his lunch hour or whenever he could find an hour or two in the studio. He just did it off his own back. There was no money. There was nothing. So really no expectation other than enjoy yourself on the day. And Joel and I always had a great laugh. Uh, and and uh, uh and this guy would would email and say, uh, oh, we, we've now we're up to 10,000 regular listeners or whatever the, the phrase is. Mm-hmm. And then it was, oh, we're up to 20. or oh, we're up to 30. And then by the end, we were up to 140,000 every week. And we still didn't pay any attention. <laughs> um, and we still didn't get any money.
0: You still um, started every episode by smoking a foil. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Joel used to bring in these, uh, pork pies.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so what used to happen was you'd hear him fucking eating a pork pie on the podcast, <laughs> you know, cause Joel is a big fella. He likes his food, bless his heart. So, so how about
0: this new one? What's different? What's different to you about the new one? It's just you and this guy and you're, you're not just the, you said you were more the funny cat. He, Joel was a straight cat. Now it's more of an even split with your co-host. Yeah.
1: It's like having two funny men.
0: <laughs> um, yeah um yeah
1: i mean we make each other laugh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean joel is a wonderful guy but you know we only known each other really in this century probably over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. john and i john knew me in kerrang days you know i kind of talent spotted him brought him in to be the news editor at kerrang in 1987 straight from college and um so we always we've always had uh we've always been friends going back a long long way and um we've worked together on various things he uh he's a, I like John a lot he's a good guy and we have the same sort of sense of humor Joel it was a little different he was more like a little brother um things have changed so much, you know, in the Kerrang days, you'd be on the road for weeks. When Guns N' Roses first came to London, um, they all came to the office because that's what you did. if you were a rock band. You, you went to see the guy. We were bigger than Guns N' Roses at that point. You see what I mean? Yeah. And that happened all the time. You know, Anthrax, Metallica, um, LA Guns, uh, oh, fucking hell, everybody. And, um, We're on a a different level. By the time Joel began his career, those things didn't happen anymore. You got a phone interview, uh, maybe it's some email. You can have 30 minutes. 30 minutes, you Mm. know.
0: (sighs) Not when you've had 13 hours with DLR. Well,
1: exactly. Doing Blow and smoking and drinking Jack Daniels. He would only allow Jack Daniels or Budweiser on the tour. It's just different. John knows that world Almost as well as I do. I mean, I've been doing it for ten years before John came along. But Joel's entry point was twenty first century and, and those guys, it's a
0: different it's a different business, different bands. What do you think the future is of the role that you fulfilled for so many of people, myself included, enough to get shouted out in what you called one of the greatest put down songs ever, next to positively Fourth Street, which I love. And and you mentioned How Do You Sleep, which isn't just one of the greatest songs ever, but What's what's the future like for little misfits like me who need that? Who need good rock journalism? The the fucking TikTok's not going to cut it, man. For like for what we for what we really need, you know. Do you sort of mourn that? Is there a future for it?
1: I do, but it comes under the heading of mourning album music. Yeah, of morning, I mean, right now, live music. But I mean, you know, hopefully that will come back probably will come back um i think when we talk about metallica here's an example right in the mid 90s uh we had a a young intern working at the i was on a magazine called raw by this time which was kind of like a mini me to Kerrang. and uh, I i was put there to you know like putting your like putting your star football player in a small team and hoping that'll get the give the team a lift and bring other players in. Because I was at that veteran stage. I was like 35, you know. <laughs> and also looking for an excuse to stay home more. And we had this intern. He was 17. And he was a super fucking metal fan. I mean, different T-shirt every day, their hair. This was a proper metal dude. And uh, I remember saying to him one day, so who's your favorite band? This is like 94, okay? I said, uh, who's your favourite band? And I can't remember what he said, but it was like, you know, Cannibal Corpse and something, <laughs> and something else. And I was like, oh, right. I'm thinking, I don't even know who half these bands are. So I said, um, "And what about thinking of a younger band, you know, cutting edge young band? I went, what about Metallica? He went, oh, yeah, because I like the classics as well. Um, hmm. But, yeah. You know, he was looking at Metallica like I might have looked at Led Zeppelin or Jimi Hendrix. Right. Uh, and that was 94. It's a quarter of a century later. And I don't. Is there a. I mean, is there a. Is that world still going apart from the Axel and Slash show and the hardwired for fucking ticket sales? You know? The only
0: band I can think of that's like. It must be like what it was like when the Black Album was happening is the band Ghost. I mean, Ghost seems to be making that normal ascension from opening but being good enough on their own merits they're making good albums then they're headlining their own small clubs and they're headlining arenas they seem to be doing that I guess but that's probably it well I'll
1: check them out I mean I I I, I just think that whole kind of broadcast world is gone. Right. Uh, it's all about narrow cast now. It's all about doubling down, going deep. Shut up. I think there will always be crossover. But I was talking to John about this the other day, but we might do an episode about it. In the 80s on Kerrang!, there were tons of B, C and D list rock people because we loved them as much. They were absurd. There's one guy called Thor. who used to dress <laughs> as Thor and have massive muscles. And his, his, his big deal on stage was he would blow up a hot water bottle until it burst Because he was the mighty Thor with a fucking hat with Thor, you know.
0: Just like Thor would do. Yeah,
1: we we put him on the cover. Mm -hmm. Um, we put a group called Chainsaw Massacre on the cover, they were never heard from again. We did it all the time, but we but we also, of course, put the you know the, the big stars on there as well. And me and John were talking about the characters in those days. So you had the Thor and all these weird, there was a guy called Rusty's, there was a group called Rusty's Dumpy Nuts. Wow. And Rusty was this really old guy, still trying to make it as a heavy metal star. Zero chance of success. We put him on the cover, because <laughs> we'd got drunk with him, and he was hilarious. Um, but A-list, Lemmy, Ronnie James Dio, Ozzy Osbourne, yeah, you know, it, it, Richie Blackmore, Michael Schenker, Bruce Dickinson, uh, in a way, the Def Leppard guys, bon, John Bon Jovi, Lars and James, the new great double act. They just seem to be, like, even Blackie Lawless from Wasp, mm-hmm. you know, or Nicky Six, or Vince Neal from Motley Crue, you know, they were cartoonish. You know, then you get Axel and Slash and. Right. They were all Brett and Cece from Poison, yeah. They were just brilliantly cartoonish, larger than life. And and you could have a wonderful evening's entertainment, laughing your ass off, making fun of them, but also really loving the records and going to the shows. And uh, I don't know if that's the case anymore. Maybe it is, maybe maybe uh, those big characters are around and i i'm just out of the loop and, and don't know who they are but it seems to me as if kids now are actually still going to see those same bands i've lost count of the uh, times i've seen beautiful young women uh going to a guns and roses show with a with a vintage appetite for destruction shirt
0: mm-hmm.
1: i'm talking in 2019 you know yeah i remember doing um Black Sabbath working with Dio again in, sorry, in Heaven and Hell, and at this radio station, and everybody wanted to go. They weren't rock fans. I'm like, what? I said, Black Sabbath? It was, you know, did you ever see Black Sabbath? Yeah, we all went. It was fantastic. There's that kind of vibe. You know, when uh, when Led Zeppelin reformed in 2007 for that one show, the place was packed with supermodels, actors, famous people. Can you imagine saying to any of them, "What was your favorite track off zep three
0: <laughs> right are you more of a yeah, yeah. yeah. are you more of a gallows pole person or a immigrant song person yeah they're not it it is weird It's like people are craving that authenticity they're craving they, there's they may not even know it, but they've been mal they've been malnourished. And it's like, well, this is a time when people, these four or five dudes would get on a stage and make that power. Like I was watching a Van Halen show from like 79 and like the amount of there power that that four people could create on a stage, I think people are hungry for that without even maybe knowing it. And maybe when you talk about who's going to fulfill that space, I think Billie Eilish might fulfill that even though she's not playing anything, but she's a, she's a rock star, you know.
1: Billie Eilish for me is the most exciting new artist to come along in a generation at least. She's
0: dangerous. She's got all those things we've been talking about. There's a little bit of that in her.
1: So talented. Yeah. And also, I mean, I've got, I've got, uh, I know you have a young daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, my oldest daughter was only 18 or 19 when um, they started playing me Billie Eilish. Mm-hmm. And it was so great because um, they like, you know, like all the, they like Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande or Beyonce. But to have this really a not just a, a cool female artist like say maybe Taylor Swift, who wrote. This girl wasn't dressed sexy. She yeah. didn't look like she was a porn hub, you know, or barely legal. She wasn't. In fact, she. My daughter's told me I don't know if it's true, but they said she deliberately dressed that way to make a statement yeah. about that's not who I am pretty cool wow so i think female artists right now i think um it's a wonderful it's a golden age really so many not all of them are super talented but the ones that are are amazing and billy eilish for me absolutely top of that. i'm so glad clint i'm so glad you said that that's the second thing you've said that <laughs> No one ever says to me.
0: Look, Mick, it's, we're best friends now. It happened. We we found the bridge. <laughs> we found the common ground. It was just Henry Miller and Billie Eilish.
1: I was doing, um, uh, the, the show ended a few weeks ago, but for the last two years, I was doing a 15 minute spot every Sunday, early afternoon, music news on one of the, the really big talk stations here, radio stations. And, um. I must have mentioned I mentioned Billie Eilish so many times yeah. that people started making gags about it, and, and I didn't even realize I was doing
0: it. I've done the same thing on the podcast. I have absolutely nauseated our listeners, who you can imagine are mostly metalheads, uh, <laughs> but I've nauseated them with Billie Eilish talk because she. But 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 the, but the thread is there. She she is our axle. It. She is our axle. She's our David Lee Roth you know she's there's something dangerous yeah she's a rebel it's cool i miss it it's gone she is a
1: listen that's that is a great example i mean there's some other artists i get through my kids that i think um there's one called young blood who i think maybe his edge i think he's going more into a mainstream thing but Mm young blood incredibly edgy rap metal Mm. pop my youngest daughter obsessed with him He's kind of an axle. He he he's really really outspoken. He wears a skirt on stage with, with no underwear, you know. <laughs> thanks. Fine. Um, but uh, and also the kid. I tell you what else. The kid that was in this is going to completely ruin any shred of credibility I've still got left with the metal. Gun, Let's hear it. Harry Styles. Oh yeah, great. Um, again, I get this from my daughters. Okay. But that that uh I think there's two albums and I and I don't know if it's the first or the second I kind of like a lot of it. I think it's the second one. Watermelon something or other.
0: Both of his solo albums are good and he caught a lot of shit cuz he inducted Stevie Nicks into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and he but he's legit. I mean, and a lot of people who know what's up like you and like your daughter it sounds like they know that it's for real. A lot of my peers here in Nashville know it's for real. There's a
1: there's a track on the the most the second most recent album. And it really reminds me of Pink Floyd. Mm. What's it called? Oh my
0: God, Mick, we haven't even talked about Pink Floyd. We got to do another podcast sometime because you've written a Pink Floyd bio that you, what did you say? You said the book is you were waiting to write your whole life.
1: Yeah, because uh, I always used to say, um, when they nail that lid on my coffin, I want to make sure there's a copy of Dark Side of the Moon inside that coffin with me. Yeah. I still would probably have that. A couple of other records too. But Pink Floyd, that album, I think it's a generational thing because, because clearly there's some gap between you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, there may even be more of a gap. But what I found with the kind of 10 years after me, a lot of those guys worship The Wall. You
0: know that album, The Wall? Yeah, 79.
1: I've got another guy I'm working with at the moment who is much more interested in earlier Pink Floyd. But for me, Dark Side of the Moon, it's not about pink floyd it's not about rock music it's not about it's about a completely immersive yeah. trip and i just think it's the most perfect record <laughs> I, I
0: i agree i would put i would put wish we Were Here hearing animals in there too oh
1: yeah of course the wall's but, like but a that,
0: roger waters solo album but i'm i even love the division bell i mean anything with david gilmore i love the sid barrett stuff's pretty tough for me um
1: the division bell very easy on the ear.
0: Yeah, goes goes down smooth. But
1: for me, that was like uh, I was going to say like Axel doing Chinese Democracy, but Axel's more like Roger Waters. <laughs> yeah, right, maybe, right. Maybe, maybe, um I don't know, but it, it had all the hallmarks of Pink Floyd. But you know that 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 little nasty streak—that's Roger Waters, absolutely. And I think if you mix that with that beautiful Gilmore thing that he has going on i think that makes it really potent yeah uh, but yeah they they got out of whack i mean the wall i i can't listen to the wall there's some i love comfortably none there's some great tracks but for me and i've heard it too many times but i just there's not one half a second on dark side that doesn't sound perfect yeah
0: right it's it's a perfect album
1: and i still have those lyrics in my i first heard it when i was 14 and i still have lyrics from that album that go around my head,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one you look behind, ten years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You, you missed miss the starting that, gun. No one told you when to run. That's been in my head, I think, pretty much ever since.
0: Uh, um, I agree. It blows my mind.
1: Yeah, man. All right. Well, listen, we got to do this again.
0: Yeah, well this
1: is the this is the warm-up.
0: We got another four to six hours to go. I don't know if I can keep up with DLR. <laughs> uh thank you so much, Mick, for taking the time. What a pleasure to chat with you. Same.
1: I, feeling is entirely mutual. I've never ever ever heard anybody mention Henry Miller in connection with my own work, but <laughs> it, it, it is so there, it's ridiculous. I mean I still buy Henry Miller's if I see uh a nice old one in a second-hand store yeah. or a different edition, and I will sit and look. And but I was so deep into that for so long that that it's 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 like going back to that time. And uh, it was a hard time, so I don't. I'm not always got the room to think about it.
0: Feel free to put that on the back of the Dio book if you want. The, Clint Wells says, <laughs> ta- fl- "Flourishes of Henry Miller." <laughs> Well, there you have it. Mick Wall, the legendary Mick Wall. Uh, I guess we're best friends now. We're going to have to just figure out how to get an apartment together, I guess, once COVID clears up. But no, what a pleasure to talk to him. I have no doubt that we will be uh, talking again in the future. In the meantime, you really do need to get that book, Internight. Uh It's great. I've talked about it on the podcast for years. I just read his latest sort of... Uh, It's not a memoir, but it's sort of just a book about his life, a bunch of stories called Get Your Rocks Off, which is also the name of his podcast. Go check the podcast out. His previous podcast is called Dead Rock Stars. You can find all of it where you find all the stuff. But the Get Your Rocks Off book was one of the most thrilling uh, like rock bios that I've read in a long time. Um, The stories are crazy. It had me grinning ear to ear. Several times I actually even laughed out loud. And uh, he's, a, he's a really great writer, you know, he's got a great flair for the language, and he's also telling interesting stories about some of our favorite bands. It's a no-brainer. All right, so I am going to go spend some time with my family for Thanksgiving. I do hope you're all well. I do sincerely mean it that Ethan and I are very grateful for all of you out there who listen who take the time to support the show on Patreon, or just to leave the review, or to write in and tell us your Metallica stories, letting us in on your lives out there. It's 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 been a saving grace, especially this year. When the world seems upside down, to have you guys, uh, you know, to have you guys in our family. So thank you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families. We'll see you on the flippity floppity. Peace and adios. Hey everyone, this is Ethan and Clint. We're here to tell you about supporting the show via Patreon. That's right. Every week, Ethan and I work hard to bring you the best Metallica content possible. If you think the show has value, consider supporting us on a financial level at Patreon. For $5 a month, or the price of two cups of coffee, you can ensure that Metal Up Your Podcast continues to grow in quality and content. But that's not all. In addition to being able to help sleep at night for supporting your favorite podcast, we've also come up with incentives to say thank you that are exclusively available to patrons. For example, for a pledge of $5 or more, you immediately get free Downloads of every cover Our World Blackened EP. Ticket giveaways for shows like snm 2 and slain Castle. Box sets, rare vinyl, Metallica memorabilia like snm 2 guitar picks. Email priority, meaning we'll read your email first on the show with a chance to ask guests like Hailstorm, Jay Weinberg of Slipknot, and Metallica Row Crew your very own questions. And the opportunity to come on the show as a guest for our Metal Tales bonus episodes, in which you can tell us all about any Metallica show you've been to in the past. All this and more for becoming a patron and supporting Metal Up Your Podcast. We couldn't do this show without you, and to everyone on the ride with us, we sincerely thank you. Peace. Adios. <laughs> 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 it's you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that.